So I'm lying there on this hard bench, strapped down 40 minutes with the MRI machine right in my face. Jack, 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 you know, so noisy. And I'm lying there and I have this thought. Ah, this is the most peaceful I felt on a Tuesday morning for years. And I thought, bloody hell, if this feels peaceful, then I'm in trouble. Welcome to the Balanced Medics Handover Podcast. Are you questioning whether medicine is right for you and not sure what to do next? If so, you've come to the right place. This podcast is full of real examples of doctors that have gone down different paths to prove that it's possible to transform your life and that it's never too late. I'm your host, Isabella, the founder of Balanced Medics and a doctor that left clinical medicine. If you're ready to make changes now and live a life more aligned with your own values, coaching could be for you. You don't need to stay stuck. Reach out and see what's possible at balancemedics.com forward slash coaching. And now to the podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Balance Medics Handover podcast. I'm really excited to record this episode today. We have a special guest here, Dr. Hilton Coppy, who worked as a rural GP for over 30 years. He is also an educator and writer and combines the two to create creative writing workshops for doctors. His recent memoir, One Curious Doctor, was written and published after a diagnosis of PTSD, which in Hilton's words came as a shock and a gift. Without further ado, let's hand over to Hilton. Hi, how are you? Hi, thanks for making me welcome. It's great to be here. I'm sitting on Bunjalung country in northern New South Wales and happy to join you and all your listeners. I'm so happy for you to be here as well and I'm really keen to learn more about your story and share it with everyone. So I shared a bit about your journey and and what you do. Uh, can you tell us more about why you decided to study medicine? Well, I don't know if I actually decided. It was one of those <laughs> uh, things that kind of happened when I was... Uh, at high school, the last couple of years at high school, uh, I, I was a bit of a maths and science sort of person and did was doing quite well with maths and science, uh, not so good on English and history. Uh, and um, my parents were a bit concerned that I seemed to have like some academic ability, but no direction. So they organized for me to see a psychologist who did these tests to try and work out two things. What would I be best at career-wise and what might I enjoy the most career-wise? And interestingly enough, medicine came up number one on both of those parameters. The only problem was that uh, back in those days, the only way to get into medicine was on the back of the HSC exam results. And mostly my marks weren't going to be high enough to get me into medicine. But fortunately, while I did as well as what I would have normally done in maths and science, I fluked this really good mark in English. And it was those <laughs> 30 extra marks that normally I wouldn't have got in English that got me into medicine by like just eight or nine marks I scraped in. And it was like writing an essay on Kenneth Slessor's poem five bells got me into medicine which it was sort of ironic because I hated all that literature stuff back in the day 
And now here we are, and I'm no longer working as a doctor and working as a writer and an author. So it's funny how things go. Yeah, a bit of foreshadowing for, for what you're doing now. And, and you have a lot of poems in your book as well. Yeah, so there, there are some poems in the book. I don't consider myself a poet. I only just, you know, can acknowledge that I'm a writer and an author. But I, I decided <laughs> when I was putting the collection together to mix things up a little bit. And uh, what I like about poetry is that it don't need very many words and it doesn't need to be grammatically correct. Those That kind of suits my writing style. <laughs> yeah, you like can make your own rules. Exactly, exactly. And you became a country GP. So what do you think drove that decision? Well, when I was doing the GP training back in the 1980s, it was very loose and flexible. And I was actually on the emergency medicine training program and the general practice training program at the same time. And I had an opportunity to do a couple of terms in Coffs Harbour, north of Sydney, uh, both in the hospital and in general practice. And I just, particularly in general practice, I, I just really, having grown up in Sydney uh, and worked mostly in Sydney, I really, I just loved doing general practice work in a smaller community. Uh, I think not long after I'd started working coughs, I did a, a home visit to a family and there were four generations of women from that family all in the house and they'd all been to see me at some stage. So I kind of felt like I was the doctor for four generations of one family. Here I was visit visiting them in their house. It was just great and the opportunity to care for people in the hospital as well. Uh, I just thought it gave more opportunities than what city general practice might. And then like this weird thing, I was about to turn 30 and feeling pretty lost personally. Um, romance hadn't gone particularly well for me in Sydney. <laughs> I was feeling a bit alone. And uh, for my 30th birthday, one of my friends was a clairvoyant and she said, oh, I'll give you a free clairvoyant reading. And um which she did. She worked in the bank during the day and did part-time clairvoyant work, whatever you call that. And so she she gave me a reading and she said, Hilton, if you want to uh, find love and you want to be by the ocean and under the trees, go and live by the ocean under and under the trees and that's where you'll find love. And that kind of prompted me to think about it and fortuitous circumstances uh, arose and there was an opportunity to move to Bangalore, which is further up the north coast from uh, Coffs Harbour. And yeah, I moved there in 1988. And you did find love, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I met Sharon, my wife, at the railway hotel in Byron Bay on a Friday night, as you do. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. We had our 30th wedding anniversary a couple of weeks ago. So, so far, so good. <laughs> Congratulations. That's a big milestone. Yeah, thank you. And I like that you used a clairvoyant because in medicine, I feel like most people would kind of dismiss that thing. And it's fun to hear other doctors who would be open to that. Um, I myself have seen a few mediums, so it's kind of cool to hear. Yeah, it was like, you know, medicine is so, well, it, it was for me so linear and black and white. And of course, it's not really like that. But that was what my teaching was like, particularly in emergency medicine. And there are so many unknowns. And 
that's been the thing in medicine that I've loved the most is sitting in the place of being a little bit uncertain about what's going on or not having the answers. I've really enjoyed that enormously. Like um, someone, I think it was John Lennon once said, having an answer is a place to fall asleep. So I like being awake and sitting <laughs> in the place of questions. And when I worked in Coffs Harbour, I met people who who weren't mainstream and they did yoga and meditation and, and I started doing some yoga, and which was pretty amazing because I'm a very inflexible person in my body. <laughs> and the yoga teacher said, oh, Hilton, you can't touch your toes because you think too much. And I'd never made that connection between the thinking and the inflexibility in my body. So loosening up my thinking helped to loosen up my body a little bit as well. <laughs> That's funny, yeah. Well, uh, have, have you increased your flexibility since then? Yeah, marginally. <laughs> my kids would probably say that the flexibility in the thinking has not been that great, but yeah. Okay, so both marginally better. Yeah, marginally better, yeah. Now, you were a GP for over 30 years, and in your book, you describe the many families, generations, and unique characters you cared for from birth to end of life. However, in 2019, your world was changed. Do you mind describing what happened in 2019 to the listeners? Yeah, for sure. So I'd been working in Lennox Head for around 20 years, and as anyone who's listening would recognize, the longer that you're in practice, the I guess the closer the relationships become with the patients. And over a course of 20 years, because of the na my nature, my personality, you know, we talk about caring for people. Like I really cared for them as people as well as cared for them as their doctor. And they, people who I met were who were in their 60s and 70s when I arrived in Lennox were now in their 80s and 90s. And thankfully through no fault of my own, mostly, they they were becoming terminally ill and dying because of their age. And that really weighed on me. And I started to worry a lot about what was happening for them. Not only was I witnessing the suffering that comes from being 80 or 90 years old and having arthritis and poor mobility, not being able to hear very well, a bit of social isolation. So sitting with their suffering, I started to become overly concerned about their medical care to make sure that I wasn't missing anything because they all had such complex multiple comorbidities for which there are no guidelines. I was making this stuff up like many of us do because all the studies are done on people with just one illness who are otherwise healthy and none of my patients were like that. So it got really difficult for me in that way. And there, then there was this repeated loss of uh, people dying. And, uh, and I kind of knew there was something not right. I just didn't know what it was that wasn't right. And until one morning, I was with one of my long-term patients it was like probably, I don't know, 10 o'clock and I'm already running 45 minutes late. And she's telling me about these issues in her life for which I don't have any answers. And the side of my face went numb in the middle of this conversation. Being a doctor, I, of course, thought the worst and managed to finish the consultation and ended up in the local hospital 
on the wrong end of the stethoscope and the cannula and uh, had some scans and blood tests and, and exam, you know, the, the, the works. And nothing much turned up and the symptoms diminished and it was probably a stress reaction to how I was feeling. And then the next day I went to have an MRI scan and uh, to just look a bit more closely at what's going on in the head. And um, I don't know if you've ever had an MRI, Isabella, it's, no. uh, it's noisy and it's not very comfortable. And so I'm lying there on this hard bench strapped down 40 minutes with the MRI machine right in my face. Jack, 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 you know, so noisy. And I'm lying there and I have this thought, ah, this is the most peaceful I've felt on a Tuesday morning for years. And I thought, bloody hell, if this feels peaceful, then I'm in trouble. And that was a sort of like the awakening moment, as if a numb face wasn't enough of an awakening moment. But uh, <laughs> feeling like that was a peaceful time uh, really jolted me. And then the next day when I went to see my regular GP, because I'm one of those good doctors who does have a regular GP, uh, to get the results of the MRI, and he told me they were all like, the results were okay. And then he asked me that fatal question, how's things going, Hilton? And it all came pouring out, the emotion that had been all bottled up and gurgling around inside of me. And uh, he listened very well and all this stuff came out that I didn't even realise I was thinking how I was dreading going to work and so scared of making mistakes. It all just came out and he just sat back and said, Hilton, you're done. And I said, done? What do you mean done? And he said, well, you need to have a break from work. It's not safe for you and it's not safe for your patients. And uh, yeah, that was how things changed quite quickly, although there had been this build-up that I just didn't realise what it was building up to. Thank you for sharing and for being so vulnerable. And in the book, you can really feel and, and see that as well. And it, I think it's so needed because it's more common than than we think, these kinds of issues in medicine, and we deal with hard things every day. So it's great to have people being verbal about it and vocal about it. That's been one of the really nice things in the response that readers have had to One Curious Doctor is that, ah, oh, I'm not the only one. Thank you. It's like, you know, there is this gratitude that I've shared the story. And while it is uniquely my story, there are uh, resonances with other people's experiences. And that's been a really nice thing for me and kind of quite satisfying because even though I'm no longer working clinically, I still have this thing I like to help and even, you know, dare I say it, heal. And if I can heal with words, then, well, that's kind of what we do in general practice anyways, we heal with words. And uh, if I can do that without needing to be sitting in the consulting room, I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah, it's a new, it's a different way to to heal and help, and I think the just the message itself, you're not alone, is huge. Yeah, I think. Well, thank you. I I think that's that was part of the motivation for for writing the book was that people may not feel so alone and understood. And I think also for some people, it's like, oh yeah, now this uh, uncertainty and uh, uncomfortable feelings that I've had 
it makes sense. So it it helps them to understand themselves a little bit better. Yeah, and like there's nothing wrong with you as well, like in in terms of of personality defect or so I don't know, but you can you can think things like that as well. Yeah, for sure. Like I felt like such a failure. I felt guilty and like a failure. I let my patients down. I let my colleagues down. But in fact, that it was just my time was up, and it was you know it was clear my time was up. It it became clear. Luckily, it was clear to Michael, my GP, and he was wise enough to call it for how he saw it. But yeah, I did feel shame and I did feel guilt, but uh, I I think I've mostly worked through that now. And as the burden lifted off my shoulders, that happened quite quickly. Then the guilt and the shame sort of dissipated uh, afterwards. It was a process for that to happen. Well, that leads me on to the next question of how has that journey been for you from diagnosis to healing? Yeah, so uh, initially it was it was a shock. Like I, I had no idea really. And as it got framed as PTSD, then it all kind of made sense. So one of my other jobs at that time was writing health pathways, the local clinical guidelines. And I just happened to be working on the pathway on PTSD And I was reading the diagnostic criteria and like every point, tick, tick, tick. I I just met all the criteria for PTSD. And that really resonated for me because I had been quite, uh, I was going to say fastidious, maybe that is the right word, but I worked hard to do all the things that are supposed to help to uh, prevent burnout, uh, like having other interests outside of medicine, not working too much, social contact, exercise, meditation, creative practice, all those things. I even had a hobby, you know, like they talk about, (laughs) you've got to get a hobby, whatever that is. And despite doing all those things really quite, uh, quite well and embracing, embracing them, not just as a tick box, but as an actual way of life, I still ended up where I was. And reading a little bit about PTSD, I realized, well, that's not my fault. These things happen when there is exposure to trauma. And in medicine, sometimes it's major trauma, but often it's repeated multiple traumas, like my patients dying or the vicarious trauma of watching people suffer. And then personally for myself, I got to thinking around my family story and the trauma that had occurred for my parents and my grandparents who had a migrate from Europe initially to South Africa and then from South Africa to Australia to be safe and to live in a uh, a safer, freer environment. Uh, on my mother's side, her, her parents, so my grandparents left Lithuania and they were the only two people in their family to survive the Second World War. On my father's side, uh, they were in Germany and my grandfather got arrested for being Jewish, got released, and they left Germany that night with their two kids. So um, there's quite a bit of that trauma in the family. And I wondered if that in some way contributed to my vulnerability to the effects of the work that I was doing. And that was part of the reason also for writing the book was to try to explore that to get an answer 
for myself and then having played with that words on the page for myself I thought well maybe I can share it as well and I don't know the answer but it was fun asking the question (laughs) yeah it's it's really interesting to see how you laid it out as well with the past medical history and the presenting complaint like a medical a full medical history and family history and exploring the notion of generational trauma as well with with your experience a lot of the pieces had been written over the preceding 10 or 12 years so the challenge was how to put them all together and uh and so the structure of the medical record was perfect like here was a presenting illness ptsd and then what's the past medical history well that's my involvement as a gp then the family history social history because i grew up feeling a bit like an outsider because i wasn't from australia um and it all just fitted together in a in well to me it did uh into the structure of a medical record and knowing that um many of the readers would be from a medical background i thought that that might work the feedback from non-medical readers has been oh that's so interesting to see how a medical record is structured i never knew that's how it is structured so it's been quite <laughs> instructive in that way as well that, that's interesting the the different um takes on it and how you structured it um now you said in high school writing was not your forte and you didn't like literature where do you, when did you start getting into writing and exploring that? Yeah, it happened also a bit by accident. Um, I was caring for uh, a patient, a woman, um, when not long after I started work in, in Lennox, so like nearly 20 years ago, and she had very significant depression. And sadly, all the things that I'd learned about how to manage depression were not really very helpful. She didn't like taking medication. She didn't like seeing a psychologist. Uh, so really, it was it was kind of my presence sitting with her and supporting her during this quite dark depression that went on for about nine months. And she attributed her recovery to being able to write some poems about her experiences with depression. I was quite interested in that. So once she was sort of well and truly on the road to recovery, I asked if I could have a read of some of the poems. I think that that question that I asked her was brought the biggest smile on her face that I'd seen for the previous year. And then the next day there at my reception desk was like a thick pile of poems waiting for me. And I took them home and they sat in my in-tray until late one night, a few months later, I had that nice, happy, mellow feeling that some of you might recognize that you get after you do your quarterly bass return, you know, and you've done all the, uh, the business stuff. And there were the poems and they were like calling to me, read me, read me, read me. So I picked up the poems and started flicking through and I came across a poem called And You and I thought, oh, I wonder if maybe I could be the you in And You. I might ask you, Isabella, what do you think I was hoping to find written in the poem? (laughs) How you were like a light and you helped her and (laughs) and healed her or something like that. Yeah, exactly, something like that, how without me she wouldn't have got through, you know, all that kind of stuff. So talk about setting myself up for a fall. So (laughs) 
To say that the poem was less than complimentary would be an understatement. It, it included lines like revealing your ignorance, your stupidity, your naivety, your cruelty. It was, it was quite harsh and it left me feeling, well, shocked, angry, sad, quite distressed. And it was late. There was no one to talk to. I looked at the glass of wine on the table. Will that work? Probably not. And so then I thought, well, if it's good enough for her to write a poem about her discomfort, maybe I could write a poem about my discomfort too. And so I picked up the pen and I started to write. And really, that was the first time that I'd written anything since school. Uh, but I found it a very helpful experience, quite cathartic. I wrote, the, the words just flowed and some tears flowed and, and I wrote and went to bed and, and I actually slept quite well, which I doubt I would have done otherwise. <laughs> and then the next morning I, I woke up and sort of reflected on what had happened and thought, wow, that was a bit different um, and that was good. And I began to wonder, well, if that experience was helpful for me, well, I had two thoughts. I wonder what might happen if I do it more often. Could it help me? with some of the other challenges that I feel in response to work? And then also might it help other doctors if they had the opportunity to do something similar? Because I was already involved in education, I, I tried introducing some writing exercises into some of the education work I was doing. And uh, yeah, here we are talking about it today. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to ask you next about your reflective writing workshop for doctors. Why do you think it is beneficial and do you think we can heal through writing? So for me, I, I can talk about for me. So the, the where the writing's been helpful is, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but Isabella, you have a thought and it goes round and round in your head and it doesn't seem to go anywhere. Has that ever happened for you? Oh, yeah. Only all the time, like for me? Only all the time. <laughs> yeah. And so what the writing does for me is it takes that circular round and round and round, not going anywhere, and it gives it some direction. And the way I like to start writing is uh, from a place of curiosity. And I start with the two words, I wonder, I wonder, and then just write and keep writing and don't stop writing until the timer goes off after 10 minutes and don't worry about neatness, spelling, grammar, anything like that. Just start with a question, I wonder, and it's almost like the pencil, I write with a pencil, it's almost like the pencil leads the way and I don't try to think too far ahead what's going to come, I just let it come and I'm often quite surprised about where the pencil leads me. And instead of it all just going round and round in my head, I've got some direction and then I've got something to work with, which can be a new or fresh way at looking at whatever it is that's been troubling me. So that's been one way that it's been useful for me. Offering some similar, simple, fun writing exercises in workshops for doctors has helped them as individuals to have that experience. And then also, as we talk about the writing process, and sometimes people read what they've written, 
then there is this commonality of experience comes out and people feel not alone. Someone like if you were to read something that you'd written, Isabella, there would be other people in the room who would be doing their head nodding and going, yeah, I've had a similar experience. So there is that uh, benefit that comes from shared experience. And the other thing that I think is really helpful is that medicine can be so serious and not playful. And I make the writing workshops fun and playful. And there's no, you can't get anything wrong. There's no, there's nothing, it, everything is right. And, uh, and that is quite freeing. For a lot of doctors, they used to have creative interests before they get into medicine. And sometimes they forget, like they tell me, oh, before medicine, I used to like playing guitar or dancing or singing. And I forgot. And then having the opportunity to be playful with writing and creativity reminds them about how much fun it is to be creative. I really like that idea of bringing the the, the humour, joy, just bringing lightness because it can be very serious medicine and it can be a bit all-consuming if you let it to be all-consuming. Yeah, and so even though we may focus on serious things, the, the, the approach is one of curiosity and playfulness. And so it transforms a problem into something that's creative, sometimes lighthearted, but also with depth and that uh, enlists a response from the people who listen to things being read. And, and it's beautiful. So like there is a mixture of laughter and tears and they're sometimes sad tears, but they're often happy tears as well. And so much laughter in the workshops, which doesn't happen always when you're talking about you know, diabetes that much or <laughs> hypertension. It's like not that much fun, right? Yeah, definitely not not as much fun, that's for sure. Um, now, we're already nearing the end. It's been great chatting. Um, I could keep going, but I'm, I'm mindful of time. So I wanted to ask you, I asked this of everyone, what's balance to you? Ah, now, what is balance to me? Um, I'm going to sort of paraphrase it um, slightly I know there's a lot of talk about work-life balance and I think that that's a phrase that we should get rid of completely because this is a little secret. I'm going to tell you, Isabella and whoever else is listening, it's all life. It's all life. Work is part of life. So for me, balance would be a life that's integrated with a range of things work will be part of it but it's not like I'm going to be balanced in work and then I'm going to be balanced in my life or trying to balance both of those things it's about putting it all together because it's all life so it's a it's a good way to to look at it at kind of a different angle mm. now is there anything else you'd like to add that you think would benefit the listeners have fun <laughs> pick up the pencil pick up the pen write for 10 minutes. Don't worry what comes out. Don't worry about neatness, grammar, spelling. Start with a question. I wonder, go for 10 minutes until the timer goes off and see what happens. And I'm always happy to hear from people when they, uh, when they give it a go. 
All right. That's a challenge to everyone to, to go do that when they can, so just 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, so how can people reach out to you and find your book, uh, One Curious Doctor? So uh, the easiest way is through my website, which is just hiltoncopy.com. And uh, the book's available there. It, it is available as an e-book, if you like, to read that way or through the usual uh, online distributors. But uh, the quickest way to get a copy of it is, is through, uh, through my website. So hiltoncopy.com. Okay, great. So if you haven't read it yet, check it out. It's, it's a really great book and it's really nice to hear your story through the book um, and your unique experiences. Right, and thank you so much for making me welcome, Isabel. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, thanks for being on the podcast. You've been listening to the Balance Medics Handover podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, I'd love for you to take a minute to rate and review this podcast and click the follow button. For more resources, check out the Balance Medics website. The link to this will be in the show notes below. See you next episode.